I will be reading out of Job 29, verses 12 through 16. Because I delivered the poor who cried for help, and the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him who I did not know. All right, you guys can be seated this morning. Uh, as some of you guys know, we're moving into a year looking at compassion. As a community, we're about communion with God, community with one another, and compassion led by the Spirit towards the world. And so to, to really lay some foundation, I invited um, a dear friend, mentor. Uh, his name is Gary Brashears. Many of you guys know him, um, probably through his work or the extensions of his work. Um, but maybe, Gary, and I don't mean this is any knock, but your wife might be more famous in this room than, than you. Sherry has done a bunch of work with a bunch of our female leaders in the past, and uh, we see the benefits of her work, um, but even um, probably more so Gary in some of what he's done with Rach and myself. Um, he is my um, theological mentor, and uh, we welcome Gary Brashears this morning. Right now. Thanks, Gary. Appreciate it. Thank you. So is this thing going? Yeah, it is. All right. There's sound. This is good. Well, I'm an old man, so I have an excuse for forgetting my backpack at home with my computer and my notes. I was going to do all this stuff live from a computer, and that's not going to happen. So I don't know names, but somebody back there put together some slides for me, and we're going to wing it. So if you've got a Bible, get it out. We'll use it. If you've got a phone with a Bible in it, get it out. We'll use it. I'm going to talk for a little while, and then we're going to do a Q&R. Not a Q&A. I don't promise to answer all the questions, but I'll respond to all the questions. And we'll talk together as a community. What does it mean when we talk about biblical justice? And this, the term justice is such a, a, a ruined term in our society because it's taken on so many different things. But often when we think of justice, we think of criminals. And what does justice mean when you talk about a criminal? And it means what? means punishment, you know, send him to jail. Uh, so justice means bring somebody to justice, means bring to punishment. And that's a side of justice, not the heart of justice. In many parts of our society, you know, justice has become a, uh, a term that's the Robin Hood approach to government. Anybody know what the Robin Hood approach to government is? steal from the rich and middle class and give to the poor, which strikes everybody as kind of, that's not quite fair because you don't have a choice in it. And the social gospel, social justice in the liberal church means we earn God's favor by doing nice things in the community, cleaning up parks and that sort of thing. None of those are true about biblical justice. So what I want to do is take some time here and unpack a bit what does biblical justice mean and we're going to run through some passages, and we'll see how this goes, because I have to see what's up on the screen here. If you turn to Genesis 18, this is in God's relationship with, with Abraham. Aha, there we go. That's where we're going. In, Gen in Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham and says, let's go to a land, and I'll show you later where it is. And he gets there, and he's in the land of Canaan. And the God of Canaan is Baal and Asherah. And he goes into Baal land, builds an altar to Yahweh, and worships him. Now, that's like going and planting a Baptist church in Mecca. How's that going to work out if you plant a Baptist church with a steeple in downtown Mecca? Not so good. Well, that's what Abraham does. And that's the first dimension of Abraham's righteousness, loyal to the Yahweh in Baal land where it may get you killed. And then chapter 15, 10 years after God calls him, He's got a wife who's Sherry's age and no baby. That God promised him to have offspring. Now, I'll ask my pretty wife here in front of you all, what's the likelihood that you're going to have a baby? <laughs> what's the likelihood you're going to want to have a baby? <laughs> okay, just clarifying. And God says, 
or Abraham says to God, this guy from Damascus is going to be my heir. Where's the kid? God says, I can make stars, I can make a baby. And Abraham believes God, trusts God, that his 75-year-old wife, sure he's not 75, but she's close, that his 75-year-old wife will have a baby. And 75-year-old men do not have babies, then or now. It's okay, God, I'll trust you. And that is righteousness, is that trust in God's word, second dimension. So trust, uh, loyalty, trust. The third dimension is right here. God and Abraham are talking to each other and he reaffirms the Abrahamic covenant there in verse 18, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of earth shall be blessed in him. That's that Abrahamic covenant called you that through you and through your line, all the tribes will be blessed. Then he says this, for I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. Now, what is a one word summary of keep the way of the Lord? One word that summarizes keep the way of the Lord. Hint, it begins with an O and it's four letters long. Obey, yeah. So a big piece of what happens is trust and obey. There's an old song, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. This is the obey. But see, it's a particular kind of obedience. And that's what we're talking about here this morning. He says, may keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Sadakam Mishpat, if you want to know the Hebrew. So that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So what Abraham is doing and he is commanding his children and his legacy to do is righteousness and justice. And what I'm suggesting to you is those two terms, righteousness and justice, Sadaka Mishpat, as nouns are virtually synonymous and as verbs, they're virtually synonymous. In Hebrew, righteousness can be a noun or a verb. So you righteous somebody in English, righteousness is more of a noun and justice has a verbal idea. So you are righteous and you do justice. And what I want to do here is unpack for you briefly uh, what those terms mean as we take a quick tour through scripture. Okay, is Isaiah, is Isaiah 58 next? I hope. Something's next. Isaiah 58, and again, if you've got your Bible, look at it, because we're going to look at the whole chapter here. Isaiah 58, this is in this last section of Isaiah that God is talking about the legacy into the new heaven, new earth. And this is what he says to these people who are seeking his favor. Cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their transgression to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily. Now, what he's saying there? He's talking about their sin, but what they're doing is they're seeking him daily. And they delight to know my ways, it says. As if they were a nation that did righteousness, it did not forsake the judgment of their God. They asked for righteous judgments, they delight to draw near to God. Now, one of my famous questions, good guys or bad guys? Is this describing good guys or bad guys? You didn't think you'd get a quizzed in a sermon on Sunday morning. Welcome to my world. Are these good guys or bad guys? Good. Why? Because they're trying to have a relationship with God. Yeah. What does verse 1 say about them? What? Sorry? My people. They're my people. Yep. Mm -hmm. So he's talking to these people who are seeking the way of the Lord, who want to have his righteous judgment. Now, verse 3. Why have we fasted? Now, this is the people talking. Why have we fasted and you do not see it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? So they're coming to God. They're asking and they're not getting answers. Oops, two pages there. 
Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. What are they doing? Their voice is not, God is not hearing their prayers. Why? Why? Sorry? Well, I want specifics from the passage. They're quarreling with each other and they're, and they're, sorry? Say it real loud. I, in strife and quarreling. Mm-hmm. And what else? Well, yeah, we want our voice to be heard by God. When I pray, I want him to hear and respond. And it's failing because of their internal quarreling and strife and because of what? Seeking their own pleasure. In seeking your own pleasure and what's the last phrase there? Oppressing their workers. See, God is asking that they live in a certain way. Now keep reading. Verse 5. Here's what he tells them to do. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call that a fast, a day accepted the Lord? Verse 6. six. Oh, sorry, verse 8. Where am I? Okay, the numbers here are not dependable. Is it not the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness and undo the straps and the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh? He is describing the fast that he wants the people to do so that their prayers will be heard. That's the prayer, that's the fast, that's the attitude that God says, if you do this, then I will hear your prayers and answer your prayers, answer your requests. To loose the bonds of wickedness, undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke. Verse seven, to share your bread with the hungry, to bring homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked to cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh. Then verse eight, is it? Then shall the light break forth like dawn and your healing shall spring up seed speedily. Your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. See, that's the righteousness that gets your voice heard in your prayers is to share your food with the hungry, to cover the naked, to see the person need and meet those needs. That's the fast that God is looking for in Isaiah 58. Then he says, then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here am I. If you take away the yoke from your midst, pointing your finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry, satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom as the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desires in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you should be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters does not fail. And your ancient rules shall be rebuilt and you rise up the foundation of many generations. Look at the promises there. You should be called repairer of the breach, restorer of the streets, Dylan. You shall turn, your back, you shall turn back your foot from the Sabbath and doing your pleasure on my holy day. Call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable if you honor it and not going on in your own ways and seek your own pleasure, talking idly. Then you shall take delight in the Lord and I want you to ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What's he saying here? God takes delight when you not only do religious rituals, which are important, fasts and Sabbath are really important, but also when you share your food with the hungry, when you bring the stranger into your house, show hospitality, 
see the person needs clothes and share them. Do you recognize that for anything like in the New Testament? If you hyperlink into the New Testament, where would you go? Bible nerds. What does that remind you of? Jesus reading from the scroll, from the scroll and keep going. In the, in the synagogue. And what does he read? Reads from Isaiah three chapters later, Isaiah 61. Yeah, go ahead, you're doing great. Yep. That's what he's looking for. In the Sermon on the Mount, what do you say if you got some clothes? If you got two cloaks, what should you do? Give one of them away. In Matthew 25, the parable of the sheep and the goats, the final statement of the Olivet Discourse, Jesus said, I shall be on my throne and come before me will be the sheep and the goats. The sheep entered the blessing of the Father, the goats into the fires of hell. What makes somebody a sheep, if you remember that passage, Matthew 25? What makes somebody a sheep? Know your father's voice. Know the father's voice and? Obey. Well, let's look at it. If you've got your Bibles, look at it. Matthew 25. No, it's not up there. Matthew 25, starting at verse 31. It's in this Bible, I'm sure of it. Matthew 25. The final judgment, Son of Man takes his glory, come the, sh the people and the nations together. And he talks about the sheep. Verse 36, 38. What is he saying here about the sheep? What does he say to them? What does verse 36 say? 38? No, what is it? I didn't mean 38, I meant 36. For I was hungry, and you did what? You gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous answer, when did we see that? When did we clothe you, Jesus? And what's the answer? when you did that to the least of your community. See, that's Isaiah 58 is picked up on the Sermon on the Mount, chapter five, the speech to the synagogue in, in chapter, Matthew chapter four, and this is the final judgment. How do you know that somebody is walking in righteousness and justice? And the answer is, it's when you see a need and you respond to it. Now this is a whole different thing than government taxing you and going in social programs that are more big incomes for government bureaucrats. The actual need to the community is, is I mean, look at what's happening to our homeless people right now. Little is getting actually to the homeless people, but a lot of people are making money off of that. It's not talking about that. It's talking about what's happening in your community. And the test comes in four things. Zechariah chapter 7. Zechariah 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, render the true judgments and show kindness and mercy to one another. And here's the four things. Do not oppress. What are the four here? The first one is what? The widow. The second is? The fatherless. The third is? The stranger, the sojourner. And the fourth is? The poor. <clears throat> That's the test. The widow is the one who has no means of support. It's the one who has no husband and in the Israeli economy, Israeli economy, the husband was a source of support and a widow was, was helpless. Do you care about the plight of the widow? The orphan who has no, no parents, do you care about that person? The stranger, the person who moves up from California and doesn't know where to take his trash. Californians are kind of dumb, you know. <laughs> no, no. 
But the stranger, you know, you come in and you just don't know what the rules are. You don't know where to go. And you help that person. And the poor. And see, that's the test. Do we have compassion for those people? And the test he's talking about here is very simply, do I care about, my phrase, do I care about the worthless to me person? Let me explain that for a little bit. My pretty wife, is she of worth to me? They're like big time. If I do something nice to Sherry, that's expected. I do it because, I mean, we are back and forth. We've been married for almost 56 years now. We have a good relationship. I thank you, pretty wife, for being faithful and loving me and treating me well. She is very worthwhile to me. But see, the test is what I do to the worthless to me person. The person, if I help them, I get nothing back. If I help somebody with power in the society, that's a good thing because now they're going to help me back. If I help somebody who has no power in the society, it doesn't do me any good in a societal level. That's what he's talking about. So in our case, the example I use a lot is Cindy. Cindy spent the first 25 years of her life in hell. The home she grew up in was as bad as a home could be. I don't tell her stories because they're so horrible. Uh, she inconveniently got saved. And that really made her family mad. So they, well, they did horrible things to her. And the church that she was saved in, up in the Seattle area, sent her to Ecola Hall down at Cannon Beach, short-term Bible school, one-year Bible school. They sent her to get her away from the family in hopes that they would not, I mean, just do horrible things to her. Well, they sent her down there, and her first class at Ecola Hall, I was the teacher. What did she say to me in that one-week class, her first week at Ecola, my first week of teaching Ecola? What did she say to me? What do you think? Take a guess. What did Cindy say to me in that first week of being at Ecola Hall? A powerful man. What did she say to me? Rachel, what did she say to me? No idea. Oh, yeah, you do. You know. Yeah, totally. What did she say to me? Nothing. 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 Yeah, see, she answered with her words because I picked her out. Ah, you know. Nothing. She was a little rock. She has been abused unspeakably. She's not going to talk to me. Now, I've seen the notes she took from the class. A year later, I was back, and somebody introduced us. Somebody told me a bit of her story, so I was sitting with some people at Bell Tower there at Ken Beach Conference Center, and I listened to the story, and I listened to another story, and I turned to Cindy, and I said, what about your story? And man, I thought she was going to hit me. She went flouncing away. Why would you care? A year later, she looked for counseling. We invited her to stay at our house. We do a lot of hospitality. So she's spending nights at our house. So she do counseling up in Denver or in Portland because she couldn't do it in, in Cannon Beach. June 8, 1989, she became, Sherry and Cindy got together and gave me my biggest desire a daughter, a girl. And she's been Cindy Brashears since 1989. Was Cindy an asset on our balance sheet? No, no, not at all. Not at all. She is now. Things have changed a lot. But see, the thing is, do you care about the worthless to me person is the test. That's what the test of justice is, biblically. Do you care about the person who has nothing? One more passage, James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Oh, sorry, James chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? 
famous question. Are we doing a performance-based religion as Christians? Absolutely. It doesn't begin with performance, but it continues into performance. That's what we've been saying here the whole time. God wants us to do righteousness and justice. God wants us to care for the poor, the needy, the stranger, the orphan, the widow. What good is it if your faith has no works? What are you saying here? If a brother, uh, sorry, that's it, yeah. If someone says they have faith but doesn't have works, can that, can that faith save him? See, because the faith that counts connects you with the life of Jesus. And if you're connected with the life of Jesus, then you want to be with him, you want to be like him. And then he gives an example. If a brother or sister, there you go. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, next verse, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, and be filled without giving the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself that does not have works is dead. See, and this is, this is a mistake that's made in so many of our evangelical things. Oh, faith alone. No, it's faith alone that gets you into the family, gets you connected with Jesus. But coming out of that is a transforming faith that changes your life if you're connected with Jesus and have the power of the Holy Spirit. And the test again, here in James, we could do more than that. The test is here, when you see somebody who's in need, what do you do? See, there's a, there's a rule-keeping righteousness. This is what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. So the Pharisees are saying, I'm not committing adultery, I'm good. What does Jesus say to the person? I'm not committing adultery. You heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. What does Jesus say? If you, Bible nerds, talk. You're doing great, thank you. If you have lust in your heart, now where in the 613 commandments does it say you should not lust? I'm not doing adultery, that's the command. But see the righteousness behind that, this Abrahamic righteousness, is that I look at other persons with respect because of their personhood. And if I objectify a woman and begin to fantasize what she'd be like in bed, that doesn't break a commandment, but it breaks the way of Jesus. So an example that just happened here about three weeks ago, Stephen and Myrna. Myrna is one of our counseling students. She's near graduation. She's from Nigeria. She married Stephen, who is a Kenyan, so African couple living in Gresham. And uh, they had an inconvenient thing called a pipe in the apartment above their apartment broke and flooded the apartment upstairs and flooded their apartment. Now the thing of it is, Myrna's on a student visa, which means she can only work for Western Seminary. And she's working part-time in the library, and I promise you part-time librarians do not make a lot of money. Stephen, who's Kenyan and just there because he's married to Myrna, cannot work at all legally. Now they are without a home. They have to move to their apartment because it's destroyed. What do they do? What do they do? They can't go out and rent another place. They don't have any money. Well, what happened is I found out about this and I was one of several. I called a friend of mine and said, hey, I said, well, got a hold of him and said, come on over. So Stephen and Myrna and little baby Tendo moved into their home. Now I use them as illustrations because I was talking about the miraculous birth of John the Baptist and Myrna had endometriosis and a very, very, very good OBGYN doctor, surgeon, who was cleaning out the endometriosis said, I'm so sorry. I couldn't get it cleaned out. Your fallopian's tubes are clogged. You will never be able to have children. I can't clean your tubes out. And they were terribly sad, terribly sad, because they want children so badly. Can't have children. So what did they do? They prayed. 
And what happened? She felt weird, missed a period, but she has cystic fibrosis, or uh, let's see, what, what is this, Sherry? Polycystic, there it is, polycystic disease. So missing periods wasn't that unusual. But she used a pregnancy test and it said she was pregnant. Now what did the doctor say? Can't be pregnant. She's got a positive pregnancy test. Okay, so what does she do now? She calls the doctor's office and said, hey, I got a positive pregnancy test. What did they say? Can't be. Not possible. What did she say? I tried it again and it said positive again. The doctor said, get to the emergency room immediately. You have an ectopic pregnancy that's a pregnancy that's in the fallopian tube and it will kill you and kill the baby. You must get down here, we must do surgery immediately or you'll be dead. She wasn't keen on that, but you know, when the doctor calls, you listen. She went down, they did an ultrasound to find out exactly where, that, where in the fallopian tube this little baby was. The ultrasound technician broke what she should do and told Myrna, it's not in the fallopian tubes, it's actually in your womb. Reported to the doctor, the doctor said, 41 years, 41 years, this can't be. What was the problem? The baby was in her womb. And this doctor, who is not a Christian at all, had to say, gosh, I think it's a miracle. And little baby Tendo was born. He's, what, about 10 weeks old now. And I was using them as an illustration of miraculous birth. They're sitting in the back of the congregation at Grace Community Church in Gresham, my church. And in the process, I talked about them, had them stand up, hold baby Tendo. It was an amazing illustration of God's miraculous provision of a baby. Same thing with Joseph, or John the Baptist with Zachariah. And then I said, I told them about the story of that they'd been flooded out of their home. Now, question. What is the commandment to Christians? What is the commandment to Christians when you hear somebody's been flooded out of their home? There's no commandment. There's nothing anywhere in the Bible that's a commandment that says, but what does justice say? What does justice say? When you see a need in your community, what do you do? You help. See, that's biblical justice. When you see a need in your community, in your relationships, the people within your immediate community, doesn't have to be within the church community, when you see a need, you say, how can I help? See, that's justice. That's what God is talking about here. Why do we do that? Well, to finish the story here, I stepped down from the, from the stage there at Grace Community Church. A guy walked up to me, pushed a bunch of money in my hand and said, could you give that to them? I said, yeah, I think I can. What happened back in the back of the room where Stephen and Myrna were? Everybody wanted to hold baby Tendo, including me, and greet them. I mean, babies are good. Where did that baby go? I didn't even get to hold her yet. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know how many people came up to them, pulled cash out of their pocket and pushed in and said, how can I help? That's justice. See, there's no commandment. But the attitude is you're looking for a need and when you see it, you do what you can to help. Why is that? Because that's the pattern of our Lord Jesus. What, did, what was Jesus doing before he decided to get born in Bethlehem? What was the second person of the Trinity doing before he came and became Jesus? Where was he hanging out? This is not hard. Where, where was this? In heaven, yeah. What was his lifestyle like in heaven? Was he facing icy pipes and a 401k that's going down? You know, and, no, I don't think so. How good is life for second person of the Trinity in heaven? It's pretty amazing. What does the second person of the Trinity do? He leaves that place in heaven with all the perks and privileges. I'm being a little lighthearted here. He leaves it all behind and comes where? 
to Bethlehem. How is he received? When the God of the universe comes to Bethlehem, who greets him? Shepherds. What's the status of shepherds in ancient Israel? About the same as a schizophrenic homeless person. They have no social status at all. What about King Herod and high priest Caiaphas? They dissed him. He comes in insulted when he appears. And then he heads off to Egypt. Why? The angel warns Joseph, get out of here because Herod's going to kill him. And Herod does come and kill all the babies in Nazareth or in Bethlehem. But he's in Egypt. What's the status of an Israeli in Egypt, an Israelite in Egypt? It's like a Syrian in Germany today. It's not a good place. He comes back to Nazareth to grow up as a boy. What's it like for the second person of the Trinity, the king in the universe, to be living in Nazareth as a boy? Hey, Jesus, where's your daddy? Insulting, mocking, what do we call that? Bullying. The king of the universe is bullied. Why? because he wants to come and eventually become the sacrifice, hang on a cross to take the sacrifice for our sin to destroy the wiles of the devil. He leaves everything behind and comes into the hell of this place, takes its worst so that we can come into his family and have the beauty of his life. That's why we care about the weak, the poor, the widow, the orphan, the stranger, the naked, and say, how can I help? And it may mean that I inconvenience myself majorly. How much did Jesus inconvenience himself? A lot. And that's what he calls us to do because we live his life on his mission by the power of the same Holy Spirit that empowered him. That's biblical justice. That's biblical justice. Do we live a works? Do we do we live in works righteousness? That's a trick question. As believers in Jesus Christ, do we live works righteousness? Yes. 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 We don't get into the family by works righteousness, but in the family. He wants us to live like Jesus, doing good works. We just read a whole bunch of passages that talked about it. If you have faith in Jesus and have no works, what good is that faith? See, that's the whole point. We get into the family free, but now we're in the family, expects to live like family members. That's justice. That's righteousness. And a mistake that's made so often is we live a works-free life as Christians. That's not true. It's no works to get into the family. But I just read you a whole bunch of verses. We could read a lot more that once you're in the family, that he's going to say, do you live like me? And that's where your prayers will be heard and your hearts will be fulfilled, is when you live like Jesus. And part of that is the life of justice, seeing needs, having the eyes to see them and say, then how can I help inconveniencing myself for the worthless to me person? That's what God calls us to do because that's what he does for us. And boy, like Cindy, she's a treasured daughter now. It's a good thing. Okay, we're going to do a Q&R here because I've probably made all of you mad already. All right, guys. Well, I'm going to be moving around with the mic. So if you have a question, let's start over here with Greg. Okay, go for it. So whenever I drive by on a corner of a street, a homeless person give. Um, The verse, even to the least of these, you do unto me, Uh is like, boom, I pray, you know, (laughs) But I struggled with like, like, 
in your opinion, in your perspective, like as believers, we know that, well, at least the thing that, that keeps me from giving is my sense of um, it's going to go to drugs, it's going to go to, do, you know, that, those, those sorts of things. So, mm-hmm. so, yes, we give to other communities, of, but, but that has always created this, like, yeah. ugh, like, Jesus, how do you see this? Right. So just from, I know that's probably some people here have thought the oh, same thing. I, mean, I hope all of all, you thought yeah, about it. Yeah, right? Yeah, I, I sure have. Goodness. Yeah. Sherry, what do we do? You put the things together. What do we do? some other say it again for the microphone okay I put together little bags that had like a pepperoni stick and a granola bar and uh, a sweet of some sort a little piece of candy or something like that and I offered that to them Mm -hmm. see if you give this is I mean the professionals tell me are well say justice is to help that person when I give money to the typical homeless person, first of all, I have no relation with that person, so that's not really what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about people within your sphere of relationship. And the guys on the street corner, you know, 10 blocks from my house, I have no relation with that person whatsoever. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the person within your neighborhood. So Lazarus and rich man, rich man, Lazarus writes out his house, they have a relationship. So I don't think it's talking about that, but what you're doing, with most cases, homeless people who are begging on the street corner are drug addicts. I mean, that's the large majority. And when you give them money, it just goes for their drug habit. So my friends at Union Gospel Rescue Mission, Portland Rescue Mission, Salvation Army, those things say, please don't give them money. It doesn't, you're actually enabling them to go further into their drug habit. Uh, give money to a social service agency, a good one, like Union Gospel, or I don't know what the one is up here, uh, but that's the thing, is how do you help that person? And by giving them money, you don't actually help them. Now, giving them food, uh, you're not going to enable a drug habit with food, uh, so that's what we do. And then sometimes God says, do it. There are times when I sense the voice of God says, and I've pulled out $20 bills and handed it to people because I think God told me to do it in that moment. And that's not my weak conscience, that's when I really sense God is saying. But I always, always, always engage them in conversation for a bit. I don't just give them money. The thing you can do, the homeless person, is just stop and ask them how their day's going. Yeah. Pretty lonely people a lot of times. Yeah. Others? Um, I think you answered my question a little bit with your comment just there, but I guess I was confused by your statement about but they're not, you don't have a relationship with them and that's not what, who we're called to help. Well, what about the people that need our help that maybe don't have relationships with anyone? So who helps them? Yeah. And aren't we called to help people like, you know, in other, even other countries that are suffering and need, need our help because maybe the, the people they have relationships with aren't yeah. able to help them. Yeah. So shouldn't, I mean, aren't we called to the yes. homeless person on the street that we don't have a relationship with? Maybe we're called to form a relationship with them to be able to help mm-hmm. them. Yeah, that's the thing. To give just money is not really the deep help. To do it in a way that builds a relationship is a way to do it. Uh, so that's what I would suggest. And uh, there's, a, there's a guilt manipulation that can come to just hand money and, okay, I've satisfied them. But the building relationships, the key there and build for it. So one of the things I do, I've got a, I met a, when I was doing a thing in Kampala a while back, I met Moses. He's a South Sudanese pastor who works in the refugee camps in Northern Uganda because the South Sudanese have been driven out and he's dealing in extreme need. And I send money, I just use Western Union, I send money directly to Moses it doesn't go through any agencies or no administrative fees at all. And because I have a relationship with him, it's not hard to have a relationship with people. And then he is able to reach out and touch people that I will never meet. But it's my relationship with Moses. And then his relationship is enabled with the uh, terrible plight of the South Sudanese refugees in North Uganda. You can develop those relationships pretty easily. 
That's what I suggest. But the negative thing of enabling drug habits, that's why I don't give money to homeless people. That's a great question. Yeah. And a follow-up just for that one. Yeah. Is there any risk? We have such a heightened exposure to need instantaneously, and there's need that we have no possibility of engaging with and being Jesus. How do you uh, coach people on the engagement of world need and um, just the vastness of need yeah. as opposed to what we can actually live as an yeah. individual? Uh, Catherine Kuhn, long, 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 long time friend of mine, worked in Uganda, worked in various places as a missionary, started, started Hope Alive Africa, working with homeless, well, with uh, children in the Ugandan slums, uh, which are just, I mean, horrible situations. I've been in slums a bit. Uh, and she was working with them. What she was doing is helping them get schooling, scholarships, tutoring, that kind of thing. And Hope Alive Africa is great. And Catherine, she's been working with children her entire life. That's her thing. She's kind of retired now and living in the Reading area. And now she's working with children in the middle school there in her little town. Uh, and I asked her a while back, I said, Catherine, how do you do with it? You're looking at overwhelming need in the slums with these children in Uganda. Uh, how do you deal with that? She said, Gary, I had to learn to be resource-based, not need-based in what I'm doing. And my thing is, I have resources, and the thing is to in put those resources as wisely as possible to help needs that I have contact with. If I look at need-based, then I get overwhelmed and hopeless, and I tip to not do things wisely because I respond to the immediate need. And so that's been helpful for me to be resource-based. And then I've got certain resources, and I want to invest that in a way that blesses God and actually helps people. Brian Fickert did a book that I think really helpful called When Helping Hurts. Uh, he's a longtime worker. And he told, I heard him tell a story to conference that uh, he was talking about a, a mythical country where a group of people in this village in Africa had put together, the guy had gotten some chickens and had started a basic egg business. Uh, and was, had hired a couple of people to work with him in supplying eggs in their community in his little business, just barely, barely, barely making it, but it was making it, and people in the community had eggs because of this business. Then a short-term mission trip from the United States came in with a huge container of eggs, walked into the community, and they're giving everybody eggs. Oh, here, we'll bless you with eggs, all that kind of stuff. What happened to the little business? It was gone. It killed his business. And what did the short-term mission people do? They went back to the United States. What happened in the village? The egg business was gone and people had no eggs. I was sitting next to the guy who was the finance minister of Ghana. Because I do these kinds of things, I try to go to the most interesting person possible and listen to them. And I talked with him. It turned out he was a finance minister of Ghana, just an African guy, as I thought. Fascinating. And when he got done, I turned to him and said, is that a true story? He says, Gary, you have no idea how true that story is. Because people are doing it so they feel good, they're not wise in what they do, and they actually create dependency, not create business. See, it's helping that's a thing. And short-term fixes many times actually are destructive. So learn how to do it wisely is the thing. Thank you, that's very helpful. Hope you guys are taking some notes with me. So banking off of your, um, what you just said about short-term fixes, I work downtown Vancouver and in a building where a lot of homeless come and camp out in the rain and um, leave their trash and leave their paraphernalia and excrement, et cetera. Um, and also I walk along the sidewalks where there's a lot of homeless. So because of the fact that we've given them resources, not me, but the government has provided tents and food. They stay there, but then they abuse the area where they're staying. So as a believer, my attitude toward them is it, it's hard to have compassion, and yet I want to have compassion, and I don't know how to um, show love except for praying. Do you have any like ideas on response. 
we are dealing with a, a phenomenon in our society uh, that I have I literally have no idea how to help. Uh, I have a friend who's in a similar situation as yours. Uh, she and her husband have a cabinet making business and they've opened it up not far from our house. Uh, and they have some homeless people near them. What they have done is they built relationships with about four of the homeless people. And they've also gotten in, input from, in their case, Portland Rescue Mission. Uh, how can we actually help these people? And what they've been told is you giving them money or anything like that is actually worse than helpful. He said, but if you can build a relationship and build some kind of hope in them, that gives them the courage to take steps to move into treatment programs that are easily available, but the drug habits are so difficult and they have no hope. So that's what they suggest is build a relationship and build hope in this person. And that's what they're doing. And they've got one guy who's actually talking about going into a drug program now because they're available and easy to get into. Uh, that's the best I can suggest, but giving money, that kind of stuff, it may make you feel better, but does not help the situation in most cases. Yeah. The homeless thing is it's just such a mess right now. And I I am not nearly wise enough to know, but I, I know people at like I say at Portland Rescue and Union Gospel and Salvation Army. And what they have, Portland or like Union Gospel has their life change program. And they I just had a guy go into that program that I know, son of a friend of mine, and uh, they they've got a great program, but you have to do it for a while to get off the so it's available. How to get into those kinds of programs? Kind of jumping off that point, yep. how, do you, how do you speak to the situations where you are building a relationship, where you have a relationship with someone, and they continue to need help, but refuse to end up helping themselves? And how do you do you build boundaries, or is there a lines that are crossed, um, or you won't cross, and so forth? Yeah. Well, that's yeah, that's a thing. If somebody. Uh, if somebody doesn't have the desire to change, and I try to make them change, I'm, I'm trying to do what I cannot do for them. I cannot create responsibility in a person. I can help them become responsible. I cannot create that for them. And I, back oh, a long time ago, I was working with a satanic ritual abuse survivor who just, gosh, all kinds of stuff. And when I started working with her along with some other folk, uh, through me, she had come to Christ, or part of her had come to Christ. She was uh, what we call a multiple personality disorder. And part of her had generally come to Christ. And she was working with a psychologist. And when the psychologist found out I was working with her, the psychologist called me, or got a hold of me in, through uh, Tracy, and said, could, you, could we talk? I said, sure, any help I can get, I'm in for it. And she gave me a phrase that's really, really helpful. Uh, if I do for somebody what they can and should do for themselves, I sin against them by uh, victimizing them. If I do for somebody what they can and should do for themselves, I am actually hurting them. And that principle has really guided me in a lot of things. If I do for somebody what they can and should do for themselves, I'm actually hurting them. And that principle has guided me in a lot of things. And I've had a lot of people who have come and gone the path of redemption and much better, but there's a lot of people I can't help. I've got a situation right now, a guy who came out of a drug program, he's been in it, he's worked the program, doing well. When he got out of it, he went right back to the job where he's getting his drugs. And I think, oh, Lord, please. So I, I don't have direct relation with him. I have relationship with, with people that are related to him. And I pray like crazy, Lord, please help him lose that job. Because in that context, the likelihood to go right back into the drugs again is so high. Please, Lord, lose that job. I'm praying you'll lose the job. Because it's such a dangerous place to be. But I can't take responsibility for him. If I do for somebody what they can and should do for themselves, I harm them. I sin against them. Boy, that's hard. But that's what Jesus does. He doesn't make us have faith? Not All usually, right. anyway. Last question here. Last question. Um, I, you kind of touched on this at the very beginning, but how do we begin to restore what biblical justice looks like when we have come 
and seeing what society has turned the word into. So how do we make it not like a dirty word anymore? <laughs> uh, that's a great question. See this thing? It's called a Bible. Read it and say, this is what we want to do. And I would happily junk the word justice. So I tend to say sadaka mishpat, the Hebrew words, because they're not tainted with the term justice that is, has so many negative connotations. And then you start doing it in your own community, Sparrow City in your case. I'm trusting that in your community there are people who have needs. Do you reach out and help them? Do you do it in a way that builds them toward the image of Christ? And then with people, your immediate community around the church, uh, that's where you do it. And stay away from government. This is not a government project. It's not a Robin Hood thing. It's not stealing for rich to give to the poor. It's a me wanting to be like Jesus to reach out to become redemptive and helpful in people's lives in a relational kind of way. That's the heart of it. So for people I have relationship with, it's Lord give me eyes to see the real need because people a lot of times will cover up their need. Give me the compassion to come alongside. Give me the wisdom to know how to help, the humility to get help that we can create a community like the early community. There was no needy among them because the needs were met. That's the goal I have. Follow up? So we meet in a school, and so we build community with the people who are contacts with the district. And so when the district comes to us and they're a government organization that says we need help in this area, um, then like what should our response be? If, yeah. yeah. That's, see what we do, we work with East Gresham Elementary in uh, Hogan, Cedars Hogan, there it is. We work with two schools near our building uh, and what we do is we provide, we do tutoring in the school, we provide parties for the teachers, and we do what's called backpack blessings. Uh, we literally fill bags with weekend food for kids that don't have food, but we work with the school officials, the counselors, because they know who are the needy ones are. And it's, it's a significant program in our community. We do things like food bank, those kinds of things. We cooperate with government organizations that are nonprofits, if possible, or something like that. And we build relationships with the people at school, at our two schools, so there's a trust between them. We don't just put it into a, a fund with, that we know nobody. So we build a relationship with the local school. You've got a school here working with this school, of course. I'm, I'm assuming you're doing that. If not, you should be. Okay, I quit. Don't, don't go anywhere just yet. Don't, don't go, go anywhere, anywhere just, just yet. yet. Uh, I'm going to ask you to just pray a blessing over our church before we enter into be our, to um, do that. our time of worship. Yeah. Um, as you guys know, our time of worship is our time to respond to God. And so during this time, you can take communion. There's some up here and some in the back. And we just do that in remembrance of Jesus who was willing to, like you said, pour yeah. himself out, yeah. become poor, that way may become rich yeah. in him. And so not only worthless to him, but enemies of him. Yeah. In some cases. Yeah. So if you just pray for us. Father, your faithfulness is our model. When Adam and Eve betrayed that relationship, you came and called. You went with you led the people out of Egypt across the wilderness. You led us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We bless you for your faithfulness, for your willingness to step into the hard place to bring redemption and mercy and grace. And we've received this redemption, mercy, grace, and we want to be like you and extend it out because we want to be like you. So I pray for Sparrow City in this lesson of thinking to meet needs, to be eyes that understand that there are people who really have needs that we can help and give us wisdom to know how to actually help, not just respond to the guilt that the enemy places on us. So I pray for Sparrow City that you will bring a unity in the place of strife, that you'll give a compassion that's like your compassion, Father, 
I pray that you give a wisdom that comes from the Holy Spirit to know how to do things based on the truth of who you are. And I pray for Holy Spirit that you will bring the unity, the power, the grace, the love, and the hope that we can build those things in people who do not have those things. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.